welcome to Women's Voices. My name is Genevieve Gluck, and I'm speaking with Elizabeth Miller. Elizabeth Miller is a radical feminist activist and organizer who runs the Chicago Feminist Salon. In 2018, she co-organized the Women in Media Conference. Recently, she has successfully campaigned for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment by the state of Illinois, as well as the enactment of House Bill 40, to protect women's rights to abortion should the U.S. Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade at the federal level. She is currently working with radical feminist organization Feminists in Struggle, or FIST, to advocate for women's sex-based rights and protection. Elizabeth Miller is the co-editor of a recently published anthology of essays about modern radical feminism titled Spinning and Weaving, Radical Feminism for the 21st Century, available for purchase through Title Time Publishing. Hey, Elizabeth, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you for interviewing me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. It's a real honor. We've kind of known each other <laughs> through social media for a little while now, so it's nice to be able to talk in person or, well, I guess this isn't in person, but um, to have a conversation together. So I want to ask you, for listeners, how did you first become aware of radical feminism? And when did you begin to participate in feminist organizing? Well, you know, I'm not actually sure when I first heard the phrase radical feminism, because when I was growing up, um, it was, you know, sort of late in the second wave of feminism, and we just called it feminism. <laughs> Um, and so I grew up with a very feminist mother and um, really surround a lot of her friends were feminists and very powerful women who were like the first, you know, the first law firm partner in Chicago and the first woman to be the vice president of a bank in Chicago and things like that. So I really grew up very steeped in feminism, but I, I don't remember when I actually sort of heard the term radical feminism and a distinction and became aware that there was like a distinction between radical feminism, which is what I would just consider feminism. And then women who were sort of okay with things like pornography and women being prostituted and yet called those things feminist things. Um, I don't really remember when I first started being aware of that, but I would say you know, I was always a feminist when I was in college. I went to take back the night marches and things like that. But I would say I got into feminist organizing and activism, you know, very actively, probably about, I don't know, maybe like six years ago. But it's kind of always been a part of my life. I just didn't really, like I said, I didn't really understand that there was, I just thought, that you know, feminism was for women and for women's actual empowerment. And I was very surprised to hear or to find out that there were people who supported things that I would consider very anti-feminist who yet called them part of feminism. Well, speaking of that, since you've seen this trajectory taking place, I'm curious what you think of the liberal feminist movement, what some people might call the uh, third wave feminist movement. And when you think that started to really become the mainstream narrative and 
what your views on that are and um, why you think it might be so popular right now. As I sort of delve into the history more, I guess I find that this split does go back quite a ways, you know, some decades, which I didn't really realize. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think that there are some things that liberal feminism or feminists do or, or have as goals that are important, uh, you know, like obviously the ERA and um, the unequal pay and violent, you know, the Violence Against Women Act and things like that. I mean, obviously, I think liberal and radical feminists agree that those things are important, but I think there was kind of a backlash against feminism in probably the late 80s and early 90s when this sort of quote unquote sex positive movement started to become on the uprise. And, you know, it's, <laughs> I get more and more paranoid sort of the, the more I look into it because I feel like there are, pro there were probably a lot of things going on behind the scenes that we don't necessarily know about. I mean, I just find it so suspicious that women started, some women started to, um, you know, be in favor of pornography and to say that it was empowering, you know, when it clearly wasn't. I mean, even in the 80s or there was the Hustler cover with the woman being fed into a meat grinder. And it's sort of astounding to me that there was any group of people saying that that sort of thing was was empowering. Um, but there was. So it's so it's just very strange to me. You know, where did this aspect of the movement come from? And I don't think that I fully understand it. And I'm not sure that we're meant to fully understand it. I mean, I think there are forces pushing that kind of narrative at the same time, trying to stay kind of under the surface in terms of, you know, who's funding that sort of thing and who's pushing it and why they're pushing it. And um, actually on the launch event for Spinning and Weaving yesterday, um, Inga Klein from Germany, who studies prostitution in Germany, was saying that um, the German government and some other um, European governments decided to legalize prostitution in order to get tax revenue <laughs> from the prostituted women. Like they, they very sort of deliberately saw it as a source of tax revenue and that that was why they pushed it. So I think it's more than just sort of, you know, oh, some women think this and some women think something different. I think there's a lot more going on than just that. And why, why it's popular now, I think is very much a matter of, of propaganda, you know, of social propaganda. I mean, when young women are constantly told by every source, including Teen Vogue, <laughs> that they should be, um, you know, that anal sex is wonderful and that prostitution is wonderful and that they should have an OnlyFans account. I mean, this, this kind of propaganda is coming from everywhere from a very early age. Uh, even some of the sex ed in schools now is pushing, you know, very painful, degrading kinds of sex, you know, teaching children about these and saying, oh, these are, you know, very legitimate choices you know, to be choked and spat on and things like that. So there's a very early propaganda, you know, machine that's being, uh, that our children are being subjected to. And I think when you're subjected to that, you know, when you're a kid, you believe that what adults tell you is true. And so by the time 
these, you know, kids grow up, they've been fed that sort of thing for so long that they think it's that they believe it. Even though I've met a lot of young women who really have this gut feeling that there's really something wrong with this. I'm really uncomfortable with it. It doesn't feel right to me, but all the grownups are telling me it's good. Um, but some of them, some of those young women do reject it anyway, and they find their way to radical feminism sort of by accident or just by luck. Um, so I, sorry, that was a very long-winded answer, but it's such a complicated subject. Yeah, it's really complicated. And it seems like, as you've pointed out, more and more the grooming is being done by the culture. Uh, also, mm -hmm. Gail Dines has pointed that out as well with the porn culture. Yeah, the OnlyFans grooming, I find pretty disturbing. I don't know if you saw recently the US rapper, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, <laughs> uh, Bad Baby, I think. She she was recently on OnlyFans a few days after her 18th birthday and she got $1 million within six hours. That, mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. yeah but I, I also read that the um, average amount that young women make on OnlyFans is $145 a month. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if yeah. you're not a famous rapper, <laughs> mm -hmm. you're, you know, selling yourself to men who are then I'm sure sharing it around the world. And maybe, maybe you're making $145 a month. Right. But then you have these celebrities pushing this narrative. I think even Beyonce has a lyric in one of her songs about starting an OnlyFans. And yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So the celebrities are really pushing it and they're benefiting from it, right? I mean, they can obviously earn money from it in ways that the average woman can't. And it's mm -hmm. just really heartbreaking that, you know, women are participating in that message. But that's why I think your book is really important. There hasn't been a kind of a uh, anthology about modern developments that I've been aware of for some time. So your book, Spinning and Weaving, can you tell us a bit more about what inspired you to create this anthology and how you selected the authors? Sure. Um, well, I, I agree. I mean, I noticed that too. I mean, in the, during the second wave, there were many anthologies, you know, along these lines. So there were, you know, a lot of individual feminists writing individual books, but there were also a lot of anthologies. And I noticed that there hadn't been one for a very long time, probably for some decades, you know, unless, unless there were some that I missed, but I don't think there were. And I thought that it was really time to do what I could to contribute to bringing back grassroots development of feminist theory, because radical feminist theory was always grassroots. It always came from ordinary women um, out of their life experiences and their share and their shared experiences, you know, a lot of radical feminist theory came out of consciousness raising groups, which were groups of, you know, just a few individual women at a time talking to each other about their life experiences. And, and some of the early radical feminist theory was written by some of those collectives. And I felt that, you know, I wanted to try to support kind of a, a renaissance of women thinking about these things for themselves, writing about it, developing political theory, sharing it with each other, 
getting feedback from each other because it's really a feedback loop. You know, you come up with ideas, you share them, they influence other people, they add things to your ideas that then help you develop your ideas further. And this is really, I, I, I feel that this is, this development of political theory, this sort of collective and collaborationist kind of development of political theory is part of how women, both individually and as a class and a collective, how we liberate ourselves from patriarchy. Um, I think, you know, a big part of how patriarchy continues is silencing women, making sure women don't see the patterns and don't see what happens to them in their lives as abuse or as oppression. It's very, very important that women not see things clearly because when we do see things clearly, we often start to liberate ourselves and remove ourselves from those situations and refuse to comply with a lot of the patriarchal demands anymore. And so partly it was that. And then also, you know, even though social media has a lot of bad aspects, the good aspect of it is that, you know, on its good days, it really can be a big worldwide conversation of people on a certain topic. And so I was in all these radical feminist groups, you know, online on social media, and people were having really great discussions and people would, you know, write posts or even comments in posts um, or answers, you know, just replies where they would write these really brilliant things. You know, they would write a couple of paragraphs in a comment and I would think, you know, that's a radical feminist essay. That's radical feminist theory right there in that Facebook comment. And, um, you know, tomorrow no one will ever see it again because it will scroll by because that's the nature of social media. And so I wanted to try to collect some of these voices into a more permanent form and make them available to other women to sort of try to help facilitate this conversation and this development of theory. And so I just kind of started making a list of women who I, you know, whose, whose thoughts I admired. Um, and some of them were famous women who'd already published lots of things. And some of them were women who'd never published anything before, um, maybe never written anything formal before outside of like a school setting. And so I really reached out to a lot of different people and they were, you know, in many different countries, many different ages, many different races. And I, I think I reached out to about a hundred women. And then I heard back from maybe about 50 and of the 50, about 37, I think, ended up writing something for the book. And the anthology uh, covers a broad range of topics related to modern feminism. Is that right? There's um, a section on pornography and prostitution. There's a section on lesbian feminism. There's a section on intersectionality. There's a section on... Um, online, you know, how the online world has impacted feminism and women. I think there are about seven or eight sections in all. I'm curious about the younger generation of women who are just becoming interested in radical feminism. I've noticed some of these accounts showing up on Twitter and TikTok, for example, especially in response to gender ideology it seems to be the one of the first topics for a lot of women entering into understanding you know what i think both of us would call real feminism or as you said before just 
feminism. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what advice might you give to these women who are just becoming interested now? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I guess my, my first piece of advice would be believe yourself. You know, if you have a gut feeling that what you're being told by mainstream society doesn't sit right with you, listen to that inner voice. That's really the first and most important thing, I think, uh, because that's what gets you curious and that's what gets you starting to look around. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's lots of places, uh, there's lots of sort of entrees to finding out about radical feminist theory. There's actually, so, so, so again, even though social media is really toxic in a lot of ways, it is a good way and a way that a lot of the really young feminists I know have found feminist theory. So pretty much all the platforms have um, radical feminists speaking and like Goodreads has really good lists. If you just went to Goodreads and typed in radical feminism, you would get these really, really good reading lists of many radical feminist books. You know, look for radical feminist groups on Facebook and um, try to find radical feminists to, to follow on Twitter. And, you know, if you find, like on Twitter, if you find one person, you can see who they follow and just start reading and start talking to people and find, there are people um, speaking on YouTube. There are a lot of good videos there. So I don't think, even though you know the the men who run these platforms constantly try to censor us and ban us, um, they can't really. They can't. They haven't gotten all of us, and they can't get all of us. And so there's always information out there um, to be read and to be listened to. And then, you know, you can get into groups and talk to other women. And I think, I think trying to meet women in person is really important too. Um, like I'm in a consciousness raising group and I actually run a feminist salon um, that meets every month or well, <laughs> during COVID it's been a little tricky, but um, usually we meet every month. And I think meeting with women in person and just talking about radical feminist theory or just talking about your lives in an honest way where nobody is trying to shut you up um, and nobody is telling you that you're wrong or you're bad, you know, for thinking that things that are terrible for women actually are terrible for women. I mean, the, the, the gaslighting, I think, just getting past the gaslighting that society does of women constantly is really hard and so important. That's really uh, it's almost like coming out of a cult. It's like society itself is an anti-woman cult and you have to like find a way to deprogram yourself. And I think that finding, reading and listening to and talking about radical feminist theory and just talking honestly with other women about your life experiences is like a form of um, deprogramming from this cult. I've noticed too with some of the younger radical feminists coming forward that when they initially say something, they'll try to be very careful about their wording. Of course, they don't want to offend anybody, but inevitably they get this backlash, you know, people start mm -hmm. bullying them. Um, mm -hmm. And that happens, I think that pretty much happens to all of us when we first make our views known about these mm -hmm. topics. 
but I think it gets easier and easier and eventually the bullies kind of back down once they realize that you're not going to be swayed. But especially I want to mention the importance of reading in understanding feminist thought, you know, uh, obviously, I think I could say this is true for you. It's been true for me that reading has been one of the main sources of my own journey, my own um, yeah. coming into my own views. And so I wonder who are some of your favorite authors, especially at the beginning of when you started to form your own consciousness about women's rights. And mm -hmm. can you recall one of the first texts or some of the first books that inspired you? Yeah, I think um, Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon were two of the earliest, you know, like formal feminist texts or, you know, writers of formal feminist texts that I read. And you know, I think a lot of Andrea Dorkin is really brilliant, like right-wing women I'm actually reading right now. And it's, it's really um, very sort of illuminating as to, you know, I think she really gets in the minds of women who are right-wing and kind of gives a good explanation of what it is, you know, how they're sort of protecting themselves and how they're finding a way to live in society in a way that's safe for them. Um, and I find that really, really illuminating. Um, I've, I really enjoy Sheila Jeffrey's books. I love that she's written books on so many different topics within feminism. Um, and they're always, they're all brilliant. I really like Sonia Johnson. I don't know, I, I somehow wandered on a YouTube video of hers. Uh, it's kind of, you know, it's this very like grainy, sort of kitschy looking um, 1970s or 80s um, film, you know, video of her giving a speech. So at first it's kind of, it looks kind of goofy, but when you listen to her, it's really amazing. It's, um, it's a two-part speech called Going Out of Our Minds, and you can read it. You can uh, listen to it or watch it on YouTube. And I wandered across that, and I was so struck by her ideas. I mean, they really, it was almost like that metaphorical light bulb going off over my head, when I, when I listened to that speech. And so after I watched that video, I went and found a bunch of her books. Um, and I find, I just, I find her way of being very like definite and very clear, so useful. Like she has these ideas, like we have to take our eyes off the guys, you know, like she said, like, I don't know if, um, people listening to this interview know her history, but she was very, so for, she started out as a very religious Mormon, then she left the Mormon church, then she got very involved in trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment added to the Constitution, and she actually went on a hunger strike where she almost died, and then of course the ERA was defeated by Phyllis Schlafly and various people, uh, insurance companies who didn't want to um, have to pay for women's medical needs. And once the ERA was defeated, she rejected the idea that we can really change things from within the system. Um, and she kind of moved away from like trying to make political change within the system the way that liberal feminists do. And instead she said, you know, every woman has to liberate herself from the inside and we have to, when she says we have to take our eyes off the guys, what she means is 
we have to stop expecting men to stop doing patriarchy because they're not going to, because it's in their interests, even the nice men, you know? And what we have to do is not play anymore. Like, you know, I think she has this sentence where she says, what if they threw a patriarchy and nobody came? And the idea is that women have to just decide they're not going to do it anymore. They're, they're not going to comply with the system. They're not going to do all the things that patriarchy tells them they have to do. Um, and of course, you know, there's many different versions of that. Like not everyone can be a full female separatist, but a lot of it I think is just mindset, just kind of waking up, seeing how things are, not expecting you know, men to necessarily change, but understanding that we have to change and we have to, you know, make our, change our lives ourselves. Um, oh, one book I really love um, is Janice Raymond's A Passion for Friends, which is um, a history book about different times in history when women like kind of moved outside the system. And like, there's a big chapter on women who joined convents and it's so interesting because I always, I think the, the common idea is that women were like banished to convents and forced to go to convents as a punishment, but actually apparently convents were super popular and there were women like sort of battering down the doors to get in because they could be educated there and they didn't have to get married and they didn't have to die in childbirth and they could read and write and have a peaceful life. Um, and so there were a lot of women who, you know, really, really wanted to be in convents for those reasons, you know, before there was, before there were universities that would allow women in, you know, convents were a very popular place. And so there are a lot of chapters in that book that are really very interesting because it's history I didn't know. And it was also just really heartening to me to read about women hundreds and hundreds of years ago um, who found, um, like another chapter is, um, the, the marriage deniers in China, which I think was in like maybe the 17 or 1800s. Um, and so it was just really heartening to read all these times in history when women, you know, just decided not like someone threw a patri patriarchy and these women decided not to play. <laughs> and I just thought that was, you know, so brilliant. It made me happy to know that women have always, you know, some women have always found ways of cheating the system. So you're based in Chicago, right? So I'm curious about, you know, recent developments with uh, gender ideology in the U.S., but in particular, the reaction that's coming out of it, the conversation that is being had. Do you see a resurgence or a return to radical feminism occurring where you are now? And if so, do you think that people questioning gender ideology are driving this return? I mean, I'm involved in radical feminist community, but I don't, but I mean, I think it's pretty small. Um, in, in each individual place, I think it's pretty small. Um, I think there are a lot of us across the world, but, um, you know, I think that unfortunately the mainstream you know, most people in their daily lives, first of all, don't think about these things at all, one way or the other. And if they do think about it, they just sort of accept the line that they're fed. 
you know, so if they're, if they're told, you know, trans people are just sort of another flavor of gay and they're beautiful and they wear the pride flag and everyone should just get to be who they are, that's as much as they think about it. Or, you know, if they're told lots of women choose to be in prostitution and they make lots of money and they're really happy and they love to have sex and so why shouldn't they get paid for it? A lot of people, I think, don't think beyond that. Um, so that's, I guess that's not a very, uh, that's not a very positive answer, but um, I mean, I do think there's, I do think there's a resurgence of radical feminism. You know, I see a lot of books being published. I see a lot of groups being formed, uh, organizations. Um, and I think it is in the public eye a little bit more um, such as like with these bills to protect girls sports teams. I mean, I think that, that might be one area where people are like, yeah, why would it be fair to let boys play on my daughter's sports teams? I don't, I don't get how that could be fair. Like the boys are much bigger. Um, and I don't want, my daughter doesn't want boys in the locker room with her. And I don't want boys in the locker room with her showering and watching her shower. Um, but a lot of other issues, I think they just piece by whatever the line in the media is. And I think, you know, I think there is some breaking through that, that noise um, happening, but, you know, not a lot because the, the way it's reported on even in the mainstream media is is all the sort of anti-feminist live um kind of voice um like even even when something good happens it's sort of murky the way they report on it like this week the manhattan district attorney uh announced that he wasn't going to prosecute women in you know engaging in prostitution anymore which is great, but the like the way the New York Times reported on it, I couldn't tell whether they were adapting the Nordic model, which would be great. Um, you know, the Nordic model being where prostituted people are not prosecuted, but the pimps and johns who are exploiting them are prosecuted. That's the Nordic model, and that's been really, really successful in the countries that have adapted it. And it kind of sounded like that was what was happening because in the New York Times article, there was a line that said, well, we'll still go after, you know, the pimps. But it was this sort of throwaway line, like buried in the middle of the article. And so it just felt, the, the reporting felt very murky. And I was sort of left with this feeling of like, well, what exactly have they done here? Are they- Can I, Could I jump oh, yeah, in of course. there? Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, I saw this article that you're talking about too, and I've been following the decriminalization uh, debate that's been happening in New York for a couple of years. And it seemed uh, maybe about two years ago, it seemed like they were going in the direction of full decriminalization, which was right. kind of right. being, yeah, that was being reported. But I believe now that they're starting to look into the Nordic model, but that article you mentioned in particular that I read also, it seemed to suggest that the reason for throwing out prosecutions, uh, these were cases uh, dating back to the 70s. There was a 1976 law that basically allowed police officers to arrest women on suspicion of prostitution. But it seems mm -hmm. that those cases were being thrown out, the prosecutions were being thrown out, their names were being cleared as a result of eight 
trans-identified males who were affected by that law. And they had actually been lobbying against the law by calling it the walking while trans law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that. if you saw it. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, did. I, I wonder what your thought on that was, because I was thinking, you know, of course, this has been going on for 40 years and nothing is done about it until men speak up. But I'm curious. What right. Well, that was my reaction too. I was like, and I had exactly the same experience you did where I thought New York was trying to move toward full decriminalization, which of course is terrible for women. And all we have to do is look at the German and Dutch models to see just how absolutely horrible that is for women. And in fact, there's a big chapter about um, what's happening in Germany um, in spinning and weaving. So decriminalization, full decriminalization is, uh, is terrible. <laughs> and I thought that's where New York was going. And then sort of seemingly out of the blue, there was this announcement that they were going to stop prosecuting, you know, people and p- prostituted people, but sort of the suggestion that they weren't going to, that they were going to, you know, continue to go after the people who were buying them and selling them. But it, but like I said, it was sort of buried in the middle of the story as if it were unimportant um, when, when really it's extremely important. And yeah, it did seem like the article hardly talked about women. <laughs> it was most of the article in the New York Times was about this walking while trans thing. So, you know, apparently what made it important was that there were some trans identified men being arrested on suspicion for prostitution. And somehow that made the issue suddenly important, even though women in New York and everywhere else have been arrested for decades, if not hundreds of years, um, either for engaging in prostitution or being suspected of it. So that's kind of what I mean when I say, even when something kind of good seems to happen, it's sort of you know, either murky or it's happening for reasons that are not particularly feminist reasons. And yeah, that was, that was my take on those stories. And I'm still, I'm still suspicious of why this is happening and whether they're really going to end up going with Nordic model or whether this is just like maybe the first Sally that's kind of palatable. And then eventually they'll push for for full decriminalization. That's kind of my suspicion. You've done some campaigning for the Equal Rights Amendment in the US, right? There are some who believe that if the Equal Rights Amendment is passed now, then it could be used to the detriment of women because of gender ideology. And I wonder what your opinion on that is. I mean, I see that point of view because of the moment that we're in. I mean, the ERA has been something that should have been passed, you know, well, it should have been in the constitution in the first place. I think it was, the original version was written in like 1912 or something. And we've been trying to get it into the constitution ever since then. Um, And obviously it should have been, you know, (laughs) the basic principle that women are equal citizens under the law should have been in the constitution all along. Um, And so I've always been a supporter of the ERA. You know, it's sort of like, it just feels so ridiculous to even say that. It feels like I'm saying, I'm a supporter of my ability to breathe oxygen. You know, it. I mean, it's amazing that it's even questioned, but, but yeah, now we are in this moment where 
there's an Equality Act or the Equality Act that's before Congress that has this incredibly circular, um, nonsensical definition of sex. So it redefines sex to essentially mean gender identity and stereotypes about sex. And then the Bostock case in the Supreme Court kind of had a similar definition and the executive orders that um, Biden passed on his or wrote on his first day in office picked up on that language as well. And so I definitely see the risk that if the ERA is actually added to the Constitution now that it's been ratified by 38 states, but then because it, it's just one sentence saying that you can't discriminate against people on the basis of sex or that Congress shall write no, I think it says Congress shall write no law discriminating on the basis of sex. But if sex then is defined not as sex, but as something else, then that could be problematic. Um, so I understand that point of view. I mean, I guess I feel like it's still a worthy goal to have our constitution, you know, our, our foundational legal document um, say that women are equal citizens and can't be discriminated against and that we can then fight the definition of sex in these other places to, to, to have that definition made correct because the constitution will always be there, but statutes are amended constantly and Supreme Court um, decisions are written and then they can be overturned or, or the court can just write a later decision clarifying what they meant. Um, and sometimes when they write a decision clarifying what they meant, what they're really doing is taking back part of a mistake that they made. Um, so clarifying can be sort of a, a euphemism for, oh yeah, we kind of got it wrong before and now we're gonna fix it. Um, so I feel like the, it's easier to fix those things because they're not as permanent as the constitution. So I guess I don't really wanna give up on the idea of having equality in the constitution. I do understand people's concerns about it in this moment because of the craziness that's going on right now. As I mentioned before, there are some younger women that I've seen showing up on social media to push back against the quote unquote liberal feminist movement. And I wonder if you could maybe explain your views or maybe some tactics that you think might be useful for reaching out to younger women. I mean, I think the advice that I would give to those younger women is find other women to talk to, um, find other feminist women to talk to, you know, read, read as much as you can. There's lots of places online where you can read PDFs of a lot of classic feminist texts, you know, get into radical feminist groups online. There's platforms that are specifically for feminists like Twitter, uh, not Twitter, I can't believe I just said Twitter, Spinster <laughs> and Over It and Giggle is a new one that I haven't gotten into too much, but the times that I've been on it, I've seen some good discussions. And then even on, you know, the male run platforms, um, there's a lot of good discussion, you know, on Facebook and Twitter. So find women to talk to, get into groups online and find ways to get together with women in person. You know, find women in your area and, and do 
you could even do, you know, Zoom meetings with them if they're too far, you know, to meet in person, but do your best to form an in-person, um, you know, collective of feminist women where you live. And uh, like, for instance, I started this um, feminist salon and we actually have women who come from several different states, um, from Michigan and Indiana and Wisconsin, as well as Illinois. And so it's really, it's just so valuable to meet with other women and just talk. And, you know, we can, we build theory together. We just share experiences in our lives. Um, and I think it's, it's sisterhood, you know, it's really so, so valuable. And also, I think women's festivals can be really, really helpful. Like there's one called the Michigan Family Reunion that was started after um, gender ideologues shut down the women's, uh, the Michigan Women's Music Festival. There was a festival that started up kind of to commemorate it. And it's, it takes place in Michigan in the summer. And there's a large a, you know, a pretty large group of radical feminist women who go to that and just, we just sit around and talk, you know, it's great. So try to go to festivals, you know, just meet, find ways to get together and organize with women around the issues that you care about. Um, and if, you know, if you raise your voice in circles and you're shut down, then find a different circle or make oh. a different circle. How about the other way around? So, for example, how can older women or not even older, but just women who have been invested in doing this work for a longer time help women who are just coming into it now? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is just listening, just getting to know them, um, giving them things to read, telling them about your life experience. Uh, I mean, I think one of the ways that patriarchy and anti-feminism is perpetuated is that women from different generations are encouraged to stay away from each other and to, um, you know, we're sort of fed this line of like, well, older women are told, well, younger women don't know anything. And I think younger women are told older women don't know anything. You know, everything that older women thought they knew stop being true, you know, and now something completely different is true. Um, and I think just spending time together and talking to each other goes a long way toward helping women in all the generations realize that these aren't really intergenerational differences. They're really um, differences in political perspective. Um, but I think you can't find that out without spending time together. So really, I think just meeting and talking and, you know, like I said, giving, telling people about, telling the younger women about our history and what we've experienced in our lives um, and how things, like one, one thing that really, really bothers me is like when I'm on TikTok, I started watching TikTok during the pandemic sort of for relaxation, <laughs> but then I started seeing young women talking about how like young lesbian women saying, well, I need to like cuff my pants and cuff my shirt so that people know I'm gay. And it's like, they think that somehow wearing certain clothing like creates your identity. I mean, I don't think they all think that, but I think some of them think that like 
having short hair is like this massive political statement and that they might get attacked for having short hair and things like that. And I see these young women saying like, they're afraid to go to a barber and get a short haircut. And so like, I think it can be valuable to just say to them, you know, I've been having that haircut, you know, for 30 years, or I've been wearing X, Y, and Z for 30 years. And when I was growing up, nobody thought twice about wearing anything like that. You know, people could wear what they wanted. People weren't obsessed with sort of the political signifiers of clothing. They just wore what they wanted to wear. And I've like, I've had that conversation with some young women and they're like astounded that there was a time when kind of everyone was gender neutral and everyone sort of rejected the demand to that women wear makeup and men wear men not wear anything colorful or flowy. Like, I think a lot of young people just don't know there was a time like that. I think that's why, as you said, the conversations between intergenerational feminists is so important. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, I see that the younger generation has sort of specific issues that prior generations didn't have to deal with. Like, for example, we talk about OnlyFans, online grooming, um, the bullying that happens online, which is tremendous. Yeah, can be. Yeah. And they're just forming their selfhood, their identity. They're trying to come into their own, establish their voice. And then they get this massive pushback online that, you know, um, I'm in my thirties, so I didn't grow up with the internet in the same way that they did. But I think it's important for older women to listen to that problem and to Mm -hmm. understand the intense pressure that they might have, but also to have that conversation together where the younger generation can understand why these problems are not necessarily new, but just in a different form. Mm -hmm. And so I think your point there is really uh, well taken that when, when they see that this wasn't the case always in the past, Um, why is this happening now? Uh, In South Korea, for example, the take off the corset movement, which was rejecting all of the beauty standards and stereotypes, women were being physically attacked for cutting their hair short. So yeah, this is something that at least I, at least I'm aware of in South Korea is an actual threat where cutting your hair short can uh, lead to social stigma, violence in some cases, So it's not totally unheard of. However, I do think that maybe in some cases, online bullying can exacerbate a threat that might not be real. Does that make sense? Yeah, that completely makes sense. Both things that you said, you know, definitely make a lot of sense. And I think, I think that online bullying really, that's a really good point that it really does exacerbate and blow up threats into something bigger in people's minds. And, and one thing I've noticed is that if you sort of try to be nice to people who are bullying you online, it just emboldens them and it makes them bully you more because they kind of sense weakness the way a shark senses blood, you know? But if you just take a very strong stand and you say, no, you know, what you're saying isn't true. I'm not going to agree with you that it's true. And I have every right to disagree with you, you know, my, my experience is X and Y, and that's just as valid as your experience. And I'm not going to back down from talking about it. When I do things like that, I find that people just sort of fade away. 
you know, but if you kind of try to say, well, oh, I don't mean to offend you, but, you know, it maybe is it okay if maybe I think just a tiny bit differently, then they'll just attack you harder. We really so all one thing. take a line from Jermaine Greer's book when she was asked to be ameliorating about the gender issue. And she said, uh, the interviewer said to her, aren't you aware that your views can be offensive to some people? And she said, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Their views are offensive to me. <laughs> so, you know, I guess it goes both ways. I mean, I have just as much right to, or lack there, you know, or lack of right to have my offense taken seriously as they do. You know, I find it very offensive when someone says to me, you know, that women like being choked or spat on or that they should like it. That's incredibly offensive to me, you know? So my right to have my offense taken seriously is just as you know valid as anyone else's. And I think, I mean, I think part of what makes all of this so much worse is that women are so heavily socialized to caretake everyone's feelings emotionally and kind of make sure that we're smoothing feathers and not ruffling feathers and making everybody feel better. And it's, I think it's very hard to fight that socialization and people count on that people count on the fact that we have that socialization, uh, but we need to, you know, fight it. You recently had an online event for the launch of your new anthology. Uh, how was that? How did it go? Oh, it went really well. We had, um, I think, six of the authors of the book speak and to sort of give presentations about why they wrote why they wrote the chapters they did why they said what they said in their chapters and then also work they've been doing around that issue since then or you know additional thoughts that they've had about their topics since then the presentations were just wonderful so it was it was really a great event and then there was time for people to ask questions um, and it actually kind of inspired me to want to do additional forums um, on some of the some of the topics in the book and also just some of the subjects that came up during the discussion. Um, and so I'm going to work on having some additional forums in the future. Oh, that's great news. And yeah, I'm excited about it. <laughs> will these videos be available online on YouTube or other other? Yeah, other so the, the forum was sponsored by Feminists and Struggle and they have a YouTube channel um, and they're going to just sort of take a look at it, edit out anything that is sort of extraneous, and then um, put it up on YouTube in the near future. And how can people purchase spinning and weaving? Well, um, so right now the print version is out, and an electronic or several different electronic versions will be coming out in the next weeks. Um, but right now you can buy the print version. And if you're in the U.S., you can buy it on the publisher's website, so Title Time Publishing, their website. Um, and you can, you can also read about the book and get a link to the Title Time website from the website that I developed for the book, which is spinningandweaving.org. So you can go to spinningandweaving.org, look at the table of contents, read about the book, um, some other interviews I've done are posted there. And then there's a link to the title time publishing website. And if, again, as, as I said, if you're in the U.S., you can purchase it directly from title time. 
if you're outside the U.S., it's the distributor is distributing it to basically all bookstores and all online purveyors of books. So pretty much anywhere you buy books, uh, and this is true in the U.S. too, but it, but it's also true outside the U.S. More or less anywhere that you are used to buying books, it's available. Why did you decide to call it spinning and weaving? Well, um, I really liked the imagery that Mary Daly uses of spinning and weaving. So that was sort of where I first got the idea was from some of her books that use that imagery, but it was also kind of mixed together with a lot of other things like the fact that women have been you know, people in society who weave textiles and who spin thread, um, you know, that's used to make clothes. And actually the word spinster comes from women whose profession it was to spin thread. And then it sort of connected for me also to spiders and to Athena, um, who was the goddess of, of crafts and spinning. And there's the story of arachne where the word arachnid comes from where she challenged there was a woman who was very good at spinning actually I can't remember whether it was spinning or weaving it must have been spinning because she turned her into a spider because she was jealous of her (laughs) so I liked all of that imagery and then somebody at some point when I was talking to them said a phrase of spinning textiles out of text Um, and so this idea that we're writing these texts and when we share our texts with each other it kind of creates this textile or this quilt um, that's woven or spun together out of women's words and it's spun and woven into you know this textile of theory of radical feminist theory so it's kind of a lot of little pieces you know that all kind of came together in my mind um, into this imagery that I really liked. That's a nice metaphor the textile of words, a quilt of language. It's really nice. Yeah. And actually, um, so Thistle Patterson, who I've worked with on some projects, who does um, Women's Liberation Radio News, the monthly podcast, feminist podcast. She's a singer-songwriter. And she had told me that she had just written a song for a Green Party candidate. And she um, let me listen to it and watch the video. And I just thought it was so fantastic. And I, so I said, hey, Thistle, I want to commission you to write a song for the book. So she wrote a song for the book and she actually performed it yesterday at the book launch. And it's, it's really a beautiful song. It's called Dross into Gold. So she picked up on all that imagery of like spinning. That, there's also that Rumpelstiltskin story um, where the woman spins something junky and makes it into gold and that was something that also kind of connected to something that Thistle and I have talked about a lot over the years where women we take nothing and we make it into something you know so we just have ideas and we start with nothing and we make you know a podcast or we make a book or we make you know we make feminism out of nothing and so that was the dross into gold idea Um, so that's the name of the song. And she has some of these images that I've been talking about, like um, weaving textiles from texts and stuff like that. And how can listeners support your work or support FIST or organizing? Oh, yeah, they can go. Oh, sorry. Yeah, they can go to um, Feminist and Struggle's website. It's feministstruggle.org. 
is their website and they can look at the spinningandweaving.org website on Facebook. I run the radical feminism resources page. So when I do projects like this or future projects that I'm going to be doing, I, you know, announce them there. Um, and I'm also on Spinster and um, other social media platforms. So I always try to put the word out about things that I'm doing in those places. Thank you for tuning in to Women's Voices. You can reach me at contact at women's-voices.org. I'm also available on Twitter at Women Read Women. And please feel free to submit audio recordings, whether from feminist texts, essays, or articles that you have read or written. <laughs>